Section number seven. Henderson, Dawn, The Point of Honor, of On a Chinese Screen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. On a Chinese Screen by W. Somerset Maugham. Chapter 17 to 19. Chapter 17. Henderson. It was very hard to look at him without a chuckle, for his appearance immediately told you all about him. When you saw him at the club, reading the London Mercury, or lounging at the bar with the gin and bitters at his elbow, no cocktails for him, his unconventionality attracted your attention, but you recognized him at once, for he was a perfect specimen of his class. His unconventionality was exquisitely conventional. Everything about him was according to standard, from his square-toed, serviceable boots to his rather long, untidy hair. He wore a loose, low collar that showed a thick neck, and loose, somewhat shabby, but well-cut clothes. He always smoked a short briar pipe. He was very humorous on the subject of cigarettes. He was a biggish fellow, athletic, with fine eyes and a pleasant voice. He talked fluently. His language was often obscene, not because his mind was impure, but because his bent was democratic. As you guessed by the look of him, he drank beer, not in fact, but in the spirit, with Mr. Chesterton, and walked the Sussex Downs with Mr. Hilaire Belloc. He had played football at Oxford, but with Mr. Wells he despised the ancient seat of learning. He looked upon Mr. Bernard Shaw as a little out of date, but he still had great hopes of Mr. Granville Barker. He had had many serious talks with Mr. and Mrs. Sidney Webb, and he was a member of the Fabian Society. The only point where he touched upon the same world as the frivolous was his appreciation of the Russian ballet. He wrote rugged poems about prostitutes, dogs, lamp-posts, maudlin college, public-houses, and country vicarages. He held English, French, and Americans in scorn, but on the other hand, he was no misanthropist, he would not listen to a word in dispraise of Tamils, Bengalis, Kafirs, Germans, or Greeks. At the club they thought him rather a wild fellow. A socialist, you know, they said. But he was junior partner in a well-known and respectable firm, and one of the peculiarities of China is that your position excuses your idiosyncrasies. It may be notorious that you beat your wife, but if you are manager of a well-established bank, the world will be civil to you and ask you to dinner. So when Henderson announced his socialistic opinions, they merely laughed. When he first came to Shanghai, he refused to use the gin rickshaw. It revolted his sense of personal dignity that a man, a human being no different from himself, should drag him hither and thither. So he walked. He swore it was good exercise, and it kept him fit. Besides, it gave him a thirst he wouldn't sell for twenty dollars, and he drank his beer with gusto. But Shanghai is very hot, and sometimes he was in a hurry, so now and again he was obliged to use the degrading vehicle. It made him feel uncomfortable, but it was certainly convenient. Presently he came to use it frequently, but he always thought of the boy between the shafts as a man and a brother. 
He had been three years in Shanghai when I saw him. We had spent the morning in the Chinese city, going from shop to shop, and our rickshaw boys were hot with sweat. Every minute or two they wiped their foreheads with ragged handkerchiefs. We were bound now for the club, and had nearly reached it when Henderson remembered that he wanted to get Mr. Bertrand Russell's new book, which had just reached Shanghai. He stopped the boys and told them to go back. "'Don't you think we might leave it till after luncheon?' I said. "'Those fellows are sweating like pigs.' "'It's good for them,' he answered. "'You mustn't ever pay attention to the Chinese. "'You see, we're only here because they fear us. "'We're the ruling race.' I did not say anything. I did not even smile. The Chinese always have had masters, and they always will. A passing car separated us for a moment, and when he came once more abreast of me, he had put the matter aside. "'You men who live in England don't know what it means to us when new books get out here,' he remarked. "'I read everything that Bertrand Russell writes. Have you seen the last one?' Roads to Freedom? Yes, I read it before I left England. I've read several reviews. I think he's got hold of some interesting ideas. I think Henderson was going to enlarge on them, but the rickshaw boy passed the turning he should have taken. Round the corner, you bloody fool! cried Henderson, and to emphasize his meaning, he gave the man a smart kick on the bottom. Chapter 18 dawn. It is night still, and the courtyard of the inn is rich with deep patches of darkness. Lanterns throw fitful lights on the coolies, busily preparing their loads for the journey. They shout and laugh, angrily argue with one another, and vociferously quarrel. I go out into the street and walk along, preceded by a boy with a lantern. Here and there, behind closed doors, cocks are crowing. But in many of the shops the shutters are down already, and the indefatigable people are beginning their long day. Here an apprentice is sweeping the floor, and there a man is washing his hands and face. A wick burning in a cup of oil is all his light. I pass a tavern where half a dozen persons are seated at an early meal. The ward gate is closed, but a watchman lets me through a postern and I walk along a wall by a sluggish stream in which are reflected the bright stars. Then I reach the great gate of the city, and this time one half of it is open. I pass out, and there, awaiting me, all ghostly, is the dawn. The day and the long road and the open country lie before me. Put out the lantern. Behind me the darkness pales to a mist of purple, and I know that soon this will kindle to a rosy flush. I can make out the causeway well enough, and the water in the paddy-fields reflects already a wan and shadowy light. It is no longer night, but it is not yet day. This is the moment of most magical beauty, when the hills and the valleys, the trees and the water, have a mystery which is not of earth. For when once the sun has risen, for a time the world is very cheerless, the light is cold and grey like the light in a painter's studio, and there are no shadows to diaper the ground with a coloured pattern. Skirting the brow of a wooded hill, I look down on the paddy fields. But to call them fields is too grandiose. They are, for the most part, crescent-shaped patches built on the slope of a hill, one below the other, 
so that they can be flooded. Firs and bamboos grow in the hollows, as though placed there by a skilful gardener, with a sense of ordered beauty to imitate formally the abandon of nature. In this moment of enchantment you do not look upon the scene of humble toil, but on the pleasure-gardens of an emperor. Here, throwing aside the cares of state, he might come in yellow silk embroidered with dragons, with jewelled bracelets on his wrists, to sport with a concubine so beautiful that men in after ages felt it natural if a dynasty was destroyed for her sake. And now, with the increasing day, a mist arises from the paddy-fields, and climbs half-way up the gentle hills. You may see a hundred pictures of the sight before you, for it is one that the old masters of China loved exceedingly. The little hills, wooded to their summit, with a line of fir-trees along the crest, a firm silhouette against the sky, the little hills rise behind one another, and the varying level of the mist, forming a pattern, gives the composition a completeness which yet allows the imagination ample scope. The bamboos grow right down to the causeway, their thin leaves shivering in the shadow of a breeze, and they grow with a high-bred grace, so that they look like groups of ladies in the great Ming dynasty, resting languidly by the wayside. They have been to some temple, and their silken dresses are richly wrought with flowers, and in their hair are precious ornaments of jade. They rest there for a while, on their small feet, their golden lilies, gossiping elegantly, for do they not know that the best use of culture is to talk nonsense with distinction? And in a moment, slipping back into their chairs, they will be gone. But the road turns, and my God, the bamboos, the Chinese bamboos, transformed by some magic of the mist, look just like the hops of a Kentish field. Do you remember the sweet-smelling hop-fields, and the fat green meadows, the railway line that runs along the sea, and the long shining beach, and the desolate greyness of the English Channel? The seagull flies over the wintry coldness, and the melancholy of its cry is almost unbearable. CHAPTER Nineteen, THE POINT OF HONOR Nothing hinders friendly relations between different countries so much as the fantastic notions which they cherish about one another's characteristics, and perhaps no nation has suffered so much from the misconception of its neighbours as the French. They have been considered a frivolous race, incapable of profound thought, flippant, immoral, and unreliable. Even the virtues that have been allowed them, their brilliancy, their gaiety, have been allowed them, at least by the English, in a patronizing way, for they were not virtues on which the Anglo-Saxons set great store. It was never realized that there is a deep seriousness at the bottom of the French character, and that the predominant concern of the average Frenchman is the concern for his personal dignity. It is by no hazard that La Rochefoucauld, a keen judge of human nature in general, and of his countrymen in particular, should have made l'honneur the pivot of his system. The punctiliousness with which our neighbours regard it has often entertained the Briton, who is accustomed to look upon himself with humour. 
but it is a living force, as the phrase goes, with the Frenchman, and you cannot hope to understand him unless you bear in mind always the susceptibility of his sense of honour. These reflections were suggested to me whenever I saw the Vicomte de Steenvorde driving in his sumptuous car or seated at the head of his own table. He represented certain important French interests in China, and was said to have more power at the Quai d'Orsay than the minister himself. There was never a very cordial feeling between the pair, since the latter not unnaturally resented that one of his nationals should deal in diplomatic matters with the Chinese behind his back. The esteem in which M. de Steenvorde was held, at home, was sufficiently proved by the red button that adorned the lappet of his frock coat. The vicomte had a fine head, somewhat bald, but not unbecomingly, une légère calvitie, as the French novelists put it, and thereby robbed the cruel fact of half its sting, a nose like the great Duke of Wellington's, bright black eyes under heavy eyelids, and a small mouth hidden by an exceedingly handsome moustache, the ends of which he twisted a great deal with white, richly jewelled fingers. His air of dignity was heightened by three massive chins. He had a big trunk and an imposing corpulence, so that when he sat at table he sat a little away from it, as though he ate under protest, and were just there for a snack. But nature had played a dirty, though not uncommon, trick on him, for his legs were much too short for his body, so that, though seated he had all the appearance of a tall man, you were taken aback to find when he stood up that he was hardly of average height. It was for this reason that he made his best effect at table, or when he was driving through the city in his car. Then his presence was commanding. When he waved to you, or with a broad gesture took off his hat, you felt that it was incredibly affable of him to take any notice of human beings. He had all the solid respectability of those statesmen of Louis-Philippe, in sober black, with their long hair and clean-shaven faces, who look out at you with portentous solemnity from the canvases of Ingres. One often hears of people who talk like a book. M. de Steenvorde talked like a magazine, not, of course, a magazine devoted to light literature and the distraction of an idle hour, but a magazine of sound learning and influential opinion. M. de Steenvorde talked like the Revue des Deux Mondes. It was a treat, though a little fatiguing, to listen to him. He had the fluency of those who have said the same thing over and over again. He never hesitated for a word. He put everything with lucidity, an admirable choice of language, and such an authority that in his lips the obvious had all the sparkle of an epigram. He was by no means without wit. He could be very amusing at the expense of his neighbours. And when, having said something particularly malicious, he turned to you with an observation, Les absents ont toujours tort, he managed to invest it with the freshness of an original aphorism. He was an ardent Catholic, but, he flattered himself, no reactionary, a man of standing, substance, and principle. A poor man, but ambitious, fame the last infirmity of noble mind, he had married for her enormous dot, the daughter of a sugar-broker, now a painted little lady with hennaed hair, in beautiful clothes, 
and it must have been a sore trial to him that when he gave her his honoured name he could not also endow her with the sense of personal pride which was so powerful a motive in all his actions. For like many great men, M. de Steenvorde was married to a wife who was extremely unfaithful to him. But this misfortune he bore with a courage and a dignity which were absolutely characteristic. His demeanour was so perfect that his infelicity positively raised him in the eyes of his friends. He was to all an object of sympathy. He might be a cuckold, but he remained a person of quality. Whenever, indeed, Madame de Steenvorde took a new lover, he insisted that her parents should give him a sufficient sum of money to make good the outrage to his name and honour. Common report put it at a quarter of a million francs, but with silver at its present price, I believe that a business man would insist on being paid in dollars. Monsieur de Steenvorde is already a man of means, but before his wife reaches the canonical age he will undoubtedly be a rich one. End of section 7